Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, two guests, same company, uh, the company Rumo Blood and Cell Technologies. First guest is Carly Newton. She's a registered nurse and a manager of therapy access at Turumo. And then I uh, have Lori Harada. She's a registered nurse as well. She uh, also serves as senior manager, part of the technical excellence team, also for Turumo. So welcome, both of you. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard. We're glad to be here. Thanks for having us, Richard. Well, it will certainly be Tell me a bit about your background and how you ended up at Turumo and what you do there. And then we'll we'll go to Lori. Sure thing. So I am a registered nurse from Australia, originally an intensive care nurse from Australia. And about 2010, I joined Turumo Blood and Cell Technology as a clinical specialist. And since then, have had the pleasure and privilege of working and living in multiple cities across the world. I was in Singapore for four years supporting Aphoresis customers in Asia Pacific. And the last five years, I've spent my time in Denver and I'm really looking at patient access to our therapies at the moment and how we can get better access of our therapies to patients. Okay. And Laurie, what about yourself? Well, I'm a registered nurse also. I've been in the apheresis industry since the late 80s, so quite a while. I've seen a lot of change. I've been with Turmo Blood and Cell Technologies now for about 13 years, and I manage a team of 12 specialists across the United States that train our customers on our medical devices. So we support our customers in providing therapies to patients and also to collect blood and platelets from donors. Okay, so what is uh, apheresis and then what is the premise of Turmo? What's the goal of the company? So apheresis means to separate and we separate the blood into its main components, which are plasma, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. And the main premise of our company is to contribute to society through healthcare. So we help patients and donors see the benefit of donating blood and platelet, and the advantage of the therapies that we can provide. Carly is excellent at our sickle cell disease population. So Carly, please share with him what we're doing with the sickle cell disease patients. Sure thing. So yeah, like Larry said, really the goal of our company is to use our products, services, and software to allow our customers to either collect cells or prepare blood to help treat challenging diseases. And one of these diseases is sickle cell disease. So there is a therapy that one of our devices does for sickle cell patients, and it's called a red blood cell exchange. So with that, what actually happens is the patient's blood is pumped into our system. Like Laurie said, the blood is separated into red cells and plasma. The red cells are pushed up to a waste bag and then we reinfuse or exchange with healthy 
donor blood cells. So this is a type of transfusion therapy that's available for sickle cell patients. And what we're doing from a therapy access standpoint is we're working with lots of other departments within company, like our government affairs group, our medical affairs group, market access group, to really make sure the right reimbursements there for these patients to access procedures, the right policies are in place for access, and that we're educating both physicians and patients to really be able to understand what this therapy is would it potentially help them with their disease and basically help connect them to get better access for these patients. So this particular transfusion, what is it called when you're not transfusing whole blood? Does it have its own name? And, you know, what does it do for patients that have sickle cell anemia? Yeah. So there are different types of transfusion therapy. So very often um, sickle cell patients are either just either prescribed some sort of pharmaceutical therapy to help them manage their disease or a transfusion therapy. So there's different types of transfusion therapies. There's something called simple transfusion, where a sickle cell patient will go into a hospital once or twice a month and have an infusion of donor red cells. And the goal of any transfusion therapy is to be able to provide healthy donor cells to a patient and increase the blood's oxygen carrying capacity. But there's differences with the different therapies that are available for transfusion therapy. So we just talked a little bit about simple transfusion, and that's just a patient going in and having regular top-ups of these healthy donor cells. What our machine does is it exchanges patient's blood. So we talked about how as the blood's pumped into the system, those defective hemoglobin S cells get pumped up to the remove bag and we're actually exchanging with healthy donor cells at the same time. What that actually allows is what we call an iron neutral procedure. So if you think that, you know, a, a patient's coming in once or twice a month to have top-ups with simple transfusion therapy, because we're not taking any of the cells out, what can actually happen is over time, an accumulation of iron can build up in the body. So one of the big advantages of red blood cell exchange is the patients are likely not to need chelation therapy. And there's lots of studies out there, you know, that help with, with that claim. So it's a type of transfusion therapy that we find people don't really able to differentiate between the different types of transfusion therapies out there. Wait, so if someone has sickle cell, what happens to their sickle cell-shaped red blood cells? Are they taken out and thrown away or are they recirculate? If someone has sickle cell, are you taking out their defective red blood cells and substituting in the good ones, keeping them in there? I thought I had heard you say that you don't take out any cells. So I guess just to clarify, so somebody with sickle cell disease have a type of red blood cell called hemoglobin S. And With this hemoglobin S cell, what actually happens is there's a couple of things that happen with it. The first thing is it's got a very short half-life. So a sickle cell will live for about 15 to 20 days compared to a normal red blood cell, which usually lives for about 120 days. So these patients are in a constant sort of state of anemia. The second thing with sickle cell disease is that these hemoglobin S red cells, over time, actually become a sickle shape and become hard and rigid. So what actually happens with that is the sickle cells, because they're rigid, they can get stuck in extremities and different organs of people's body. So 
I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a pain crisis with sickle cell disease. It's extremely painful for these patients. What's happening is these sickle cells are actually getting caught in their lower extremities. They're not getting enough oxygen to these different parts of the body and it just causes excruciating pain. Sounds like uh, gout. You know, I know gout with like uric acid crystals, which I've had a taste of once and it was horrible. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. I used to be an emergency nurse slash ICU nurse and the pain that these people come in is just horrific. And I think the hardest thing is there's lots of myths out there with sickle cell patients in these pain crises because they're used to this chronic long-term pain. Sometimes they don't have an increased um, heart rate, increased BP, because they're just used to being in this like constant state of chronic pain. And so sometimes they can be mistreated or not get the appropriate pain relief that they need because, you know, there's a, you know, there's a concern they might be addicts because they're laying there, you know, in this excruciating pain. And so, yeah. And so what our machine does is it actually just removes those sickle red cells and allows us to replace with healthy donor cells that carry more oxygen and are more flexible and can increase our oxygen carrying capacity for these patients. With the simple transfusion, the other type of transfusion therapy, that type of therapy is the one where we don't remove the cells. So the patient would just come in, have the top up with the red blood cell transfusion and leave again. So you're right. There's one type of transfusion therapy where we remove the cells. That's called red blood cell exchange. And we exchange back with healthy cells. And then the simple transfusion is the one where we just top up and we don't remove those defective cells. I think the key that Carly mentioned before was the iron neutral procedure. When you just top off and give extra red blood cells to a sickle cell patient, just adding on to their iron levels in their body. And that can lead to iron overload, which can damage organs. And then they have to go through chelation therapy, which is the removal of iron, which is not a fun therapy to go through. And lots of times these patients, because it's a difficult therapy, they're non-compliant. Where with automated red blood cell exchange, our medical device can be considered iron neutral. So we're removing the iron besides giving fresh, healthy donor cells that contain iron. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Okay. When you do this for a sickle cell patient, uh, how much better do they get and how long does it last them? (laughs) That's a very good question. Usually in a pain crisis, you will see some immediate relief because we're taking away those sickle cell disease, red blood cells. When they're on a maintenance therapy, they come in every, say, four to six weeks to have a routine red blood cell exchange formed. Then they can perform their normal activities of daily living. They can avoid these pain crises because 
because they're getting kind of like an oil change every four to six weeks and it's helping them live normal, healthy lives. They can go to school, they can carry on a job, they can have relationships, they can even have children when their iron levels and their sickle levels are maintained at a lower level. That's good. Are there preferential sites in the body to take the, the blood from? Like, should you do the left arm one session, then the right, then the left leg, then the right, so that it, you know, maybe locally, if there's some, I don't know if, uh, again, if you're drawing blood, does it create more of a, uh, a vacuum or a sucking effect if it's, if there are cells that are trapped that are local to the site of the, uh, the removal? Well, we do access their vascular system, and it's typically done peripherally. The great thing about our medical device is you can do it with a single needle stick, and you can rotate it from one arm to the other. Some of these chronic patients will also have warts placed just under the skin in their chest so that they can have their routine red blood cell exchanges performed every four to six weeks. So if they do have two good veins in each arm, it can be done dual needle or single needle or can be rotated around. So yes, to answer your question, we do rotate it around, but it's typically in the upper extremities. But have you guys experimented with uh, different draw sites, different patterns of alternating to see if it works better or lasts longer? Well, it depends on the vein, actually, and the size of that vein, because our device does pull with peristaltic pumps, and you need to have a large enough vein that won't collapse against that pulling effect. So you couldn't, say, do this procedure in a hand vein. It needs to be in, like, the antecubital space or somewhere in, in the larger vessels in the arms. Yeah, but has anyone tried it again in the leg or other spots? And is it more efficacious in various spots? I don't know if there's any studies that show. Do you know, uh, Carly, if there's any studies that show any application at different spots? No, and I think, you know, by the time you get down to the legs, the veins are just too small. So we have to access these procedures via a vein and not an artery, Richard. So that's why people use, there's some quite big veins in people's arms that, like Laurie said, they will tolerate the pull force from the pumps and then can be reused again and again. By the time you start getting down to the legs, those veins are smaller, being further away from the heart and whatnot. So that's why we typically access those veins by the arms because they're nice big veins that will actually, to Laurie's point, tolerate the pull and draw. And they can be used on these chronic patients. And um, we've got some patients that have been having this therapy for over 10 years peripherally. So it's not like that the peripheral access will actually damage those veins. You know, that they will actually tolerate and their veins won't have any long-term effect from accessing them multiple times over multiple years. Actually, having the access in the arms is a lot more comfortable, too, than in the legs. Oh, how come? Does it just hurt less or what's better about it? Well, it's the positioning. You know, when you access a vein in the leg, it's typically the femoral vein that's accessed, which means in your groin. That means you have to lay straight. You have to keep your legs straight. You can't sit up. You can't play on your phone or your iPad, where if you have a peripheral a vein in your arm, you're in a more comfortable position. Uh, what about the pull strength? Um, is there like a low and slow protocol versus a stronger, faster one? Any different? 
So typically a red blood cell exchange will be anywhere from about 86 to 120 minutes. It really depends on how long the procedure takes, depending on what the physician prescribes. So their starting level of hemoglobin S affects how many blood units we need to transfer and what that physician's orders are for treating that patient. But I would say it's probably around 10 to 15 minutes for every transfusion blood blood unit that we exchange. The limiting factor really is when you ask about, do you go hard and fast or more slow? Generally, if if it's a patient's first or second time doing this procedure, you do want to take it a little more slowly. There are some adverse events, um, mild adverse events that can be managed. And that might be, you know, um, a reaction to the citrate, to the medication that we use to stop the blood from clotting in the machine. It might mean that they might have some vasovagal reactions to their blood being outside the body. So there's some smaller adverse events that you would generally want to start a little bit slower And most technicians do start on the more slower side with these patients when they start therapy. The patients on regular red blood cell exchange, if they've got ports or they've got really good access, I mean, you know, I've seen technicians run these procedures much faster, anywhere from 60 to 80 meals per minute. And so it really depends. It's really more patient specific to how fast we're going to run the procedure And the overall time of the procedure is really going to be dependent on what the physician has prescribed. But we'd say, like I said, anywhere from about 86 to about 120 minutes. Okay. And would it do anything if uh, sickle cell patients donated blood, just donated whole blood? I mean, no one's going to pick it up, but... Oh, actually, it's a good question. Could could their plasma be... Could the components of their blood be useful or they just can't donate at all and, you know, no parts of their blood are useful? So typically, sickle cell patients are anemic. So they would not be eligible to donate either plasma or red cells. Okay. I see what you mean. Are there any new technologies that Terumo is working on to make this even better for sickle cell patients? Like what's the next iteration if you're able to talk about it? Yeah. You know, I think the most exciting technology or innovation coming for sickle cell patients is gene therapy. So, you know, looking at being able to sickle cell disease um, is something that there's a lot of clinical trials going on at the moment and it's very exciting for sickle cell patients. So really, as far as our advancements or innovation, Richard, we did bring out single needle red cell exchange a couple of years ago. So that means instead of having two needles in and possibly not moving your arms for or being more restricted, um, that we can actually just do the procedure through one vein now. And what we're really focusing on with our technology at the moment is talking about how it can work in conjunction with these new potentially curative therapies that are coming onto the market. And what we mean by that is that red blood cell exchange can preserve organs and keep organs healthy. And so what we really are doing education-wise with physicians and patients at the moment is talking about before you get the chance to get on the curity therapy um, stage that it's really important that we keep these sickle cell patients as healthy as possible. And that's, you know, making sure that they're not in constant pain crisis, in t- you know, in constant states of hypoxia in different limbs and organs of their body. Because if that continuously happens, then you're going to start having permanent organ damage. So yeah. 
there's a couple of advancements and what we're actually doing, you know, to kind of pivot and, you know, work with some of these more curative therapies. So what happens when you take uh, normal healthy blood and you separate it into all the components? Like what's the typical fate of all the components? What are they used for? So when you when you separate whole blood, you basically get four main components. Plasma, which can be used in many different therapies. It can be used in fractionation to produce many different drugs. Red blood cells, which is used to transfuse to anemic patients who are short on their red blood cell capacity and their oxygen bearing capacity, because that's what red blood cells do is they carry oxygen. We can separate the white blood cells out, which is used in cancer therapy for stem cell transplant, which is the cutting edge of a lot of therapies right now for treating cancer. We collect the patient's white blood cells, turn them into cancer-fighting agents, and then give them back to cure their cancers. Then the last part is platelet. Platelets are the clotting portion of the blood, and we can separate out just the platelets and use those as transfusion in patients, especially cancer patients, who have very low platelet counts. And when you have a low platelet count, you have a tendency to bleed a lot easier because you don't have the platelets to stop your bleeding. So we collect a lot of platelets in the blood centers across the United States and Canada to help support those cancer patients who are low on their platelets. Uh, what about if someone, let's say, has a blood tumor? Do you ever have a protocol where you take the blood, pass it through certain kinds of filtration, and then put it back into the person? Are there any conditions or protocols that look like that that would help somebody? And what could be filtered if so? Well, in other world areas, there are selective removal technologies. Here in the United States, we're not approved for it yet, but in other world areas, we are. That's where we separate the blood on our medical device, the Optia, and take a patient's plasma, run it through a column or a filter to remove any specific component that is causing the disease, and then give them back their own plasma. Again, this is not available yet in the United States. It was, we, in fact, during the early days of COVID, we were the one of the first companies to get an emergency use authorization to treat COVID patients with this type of technology so that we would remove the cytokine storm that would accompany a COVID infection. So the potential is out there, and we're very excited about that selective room. I was going to ask you, which, which components of blood are for the recipient blood type sensitive versus not. Let's say, uh, you know, my blood type is uh, A negative. You know, normally I, I couldn't get whole blood, I guess, from a person that's B positive because it would clot and that would be the end of me. Um, but what components of blood could be transfused into me regardless of my blood type versus the donor's blood type? Well, there's many different blood types. There's A, there's B, and there's O, and there's AB. So there's four really different blood types. And on top of that, there is an RH positive or negative. So now we're talking about eight different blood types. The universal donor is O negative. Anybody can receive O negative red blood cells. Now, red blood cell transfusion versus plasma transfusion are just the opposite. But really, when you get transfused, we're looking at the red blood cell component. So you being an A positive, you could receive a, positive or negative red blood cells, or O, positive or negative red blood cells. If you were a B, you could receive B or O. If you were an AB, you could only receive AB blood or O. O is a universal donor. 
that help answer your question? Right. But what if I get just plasma or platelets? I don't get whole blood. Right. So typically when you receive plasma, if you are an A person, you would receive A plasma. Now, platelets are a different factor because there's not as much plasma on the platelets. And therefore, you could receive any sort of a platelet component. Now, some centers will cross-match those platelets specifically for cancer patients. It just depends on the disease that they're treating and any refractory that you have developed from receiving numerous transfusions in the past because you can develop antibodies from receiving transfusions. Why does that happen? Is it because uh, there's some kind of mismatch or, you know, what's the reason that people develop those? Well, besides the eight different blood types, there are multiple different antigens on the surface of the blood cells. And when you get cross-matched to receive blood, they're testing for all these different antigens. And the more transfusions you've had, the more exposure you have had to these different types of antigens. And if you develop antibodies to those antigens, then you don't want to receive that type of blood. So it's important that when you do receive either plasma or red blood cells, and you've had multiple transfusions in the past, that your blood gets tested thoroughly so that it can be cross-matched accurately. Okay. And then uh, last question or so, what, what components of blood seem to always be in abundance versus short supply and why? That's a good question. So it really depends on the day, but, you know, I think that the big story here is that we've been in a chronic shortage of blood since the, uh, at least the, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. Now, when we were in COVID, we actually hit critical levels of blood supply, meaning that because, you know, we were at home more, they stopped the mobile blood drives, which were a big source of blood going to different workplaces. And people were almost scared with that phobia of going into somewhere and spending, you know, maybe up to an hour inside a closed space, we hit critical levels. We still remain at very severe blood shortage levels. And, you know, I think at the end of the day um, that centres will manage this as much as possible. So, you know, there's different, if you go into a blood centre, they may ask you to donate either plasma or platelets or red cells, or just a whole blood transfusion. And if they're asking you to come in and donate different types of blood, it's generally because they see in their stock that they might be short. So I think if you go in and you do a whole blood transfusion, it's a it's a very quick procedure. It's about 15 to 20 minutes of the actual blood draw, about 45 minutes to an hour for the whole blood donation. But there are other ways you can donate blood and we can actually get more of that blood product from that one single donation. So that's how really blood centers and blood banks manage the inventory. So if you do get asked by your local blood bank, would you be interested in donating plasma or platelets or red cells? It's generally because they're trying to manage inventory and try and get more of that blood product of you to help manage that inventory. I think the important thing is, is to donate yeah, because there is a, a blood shortage, whether it's red blood cells or platelets or plasma, there is a shortage. And whether you go in and donate one unit of whole blood or you go in and donate platelets, just go donate. Yeah. It, it's really important right now. Yeah. Any contraindications, you know, um, if someone has X, Y, or Z that they would probably be turned away or is it pretty permissive? 
Well, the FDA has specific guidelines for blood donors, and you must meet certain red blood cell levels, or you can't be anemic to come in and donate. You have to have a certain hemoglobin or hematocrit to donate. There's also a list of medications that they will go through with you to see if you're on any specific medication that might inhibit, say, platelet function or some other aspect. But they do a mini of physical or a donor assessment to see that you do qualify according to the FDA guidelines. I just wanted to put a plug in there as well that it's really important that if you have been disqualified for donating blood in the past, that you should still actually go and have a look and go down to your blood center because there's it's actually changed. You know, over COVID, for instance, they did change some of the requirements to be able to donate blood. So I always tell people just because you've been deferred in the past, it doesn't mean that you're going to be deferred for your whole life. And so to Laurie's point before, we're in such a, you know, critical shortage of blood at the moment. Anything you can do to donate will help, will help save lives. And I really want to encourage anybody that has been disqualified in the past just to, you know, there's a number you can ring, just ring up and talk to them and they'll be able to tell you over the phone whether you would potentially be able to donate blood again. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes me think, what if I'm to receive blood and I'm in the hospital and I don't know, the blood I received, the person was taking statins or a thyroid hormone or whatever, how would that you know, it may not affect my platelets, but how would it affect me? And how do they screen for that stuff? Well, you go through a questionnaire and they ask you what type of medication you're on. I do know statins and thyroids are acceptable medication that do not trans transfuse to you if you're receiving blood from a patient who or a donor who has taken those medications. They also thoroughly test every unit of blood that is collected from donors. They test for all sorts of pathogens and diseases like HIV and hepatitis, all of those communicable diseases that you can transmit through blood. And if they detect anything, those units are discarded. Okay. Well, it's good to know. Well, very good. Where can listeners find out more about Terumo and the work that y'all are doing? Well, they can go to our website, which is www.terumobct.com. Yeah, okay. Well, very good. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate uh, your knowledge and info. And I didn't know much about the world of blood, but you can see why this is so radically important that uh, you know, there's enough blood and it can be separated and used. And so it's a critical part of our healthcare system. So thank you both for coming. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Richard. It was a great chat. Excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.